Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, September 28th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hear from the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court as Mississippi celebrates 200 years of its court system. Since the earliest days of this country, the overwhelming portion of the legal and judicial business of our citizens has been handled in the courts of our states. Find out how agencies are collaborating and congratulating on making strides in organ donation. And Ole Miss students have another day of voting to change their mascot. Why some say it's a natural progression. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is celebrating 200 years with its justice system and legal profession. To honor the occasion, U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts spoke at a banquet hosted by the Bicentennial of Mississippi's Judiciary and Legal Profession Committee. Judges, lawyers, and law students got the rare chance to meet Justice Roberts. During his address, he shared Mississippi history through storytelling about his Supreme Court predecessors. Now, you might think that 200 years of judicial history of the state would mean there have been two centuries of federal judicial history here as well. But in fact, this year is only the 199th anniversary of federal courts in Mississippi. Congress admitted Mississippi to the Union in 1817, but it was not until the next April that Congress created a new federal district court. Now, that gap in time allowed William Bayard Shields the dual feat of becoming the first justice of the Supreme Court of Mississippi in January 1818 and then becoming the first United States District Judge for the District of Mississippi when he accepted the appointment from President James Madison three months later. Now, Congress did not draw Mississippi into a circuit for another 20 years, so Shields carried the busy docket exercising jurisdiction of both federal district and circuit courts. There was at the time generally no appeal in criminal matters, and direct recourse to the Supreme Court of the United States was available only in limited cases. So if you had a federal law dispute here in Mississippi, Shields was your man, period. Justice Roberts also recounted the work of Justice John McKinley during his address, noting how McKinley traveled throughout the South during his tenure. Roberts says he was happy to visit Mississippi. Now, as you might imagine, I welcome occasions like this that allow me to share a little history about my predecessors on the Supreme Court. But I am always conscious that since the earliest days of this country, the overwhelming portion of the legal and judicial business of our citizens has been handled in the courts of our states, and therefore it is indeed a privilege to help celebrate the 200th year of such work here in Mississippi. Thank you very much. Justice Roberts has led the nation's highest court since 2005. Yesterday, he also sat for a moot court competition between law students at the University of Mississippi and Mississippi College Schools of Law. The winning team, James Kelly and Meredith Pohl from Ole Miss, tell MPB's Desiree Frazier they were happy to spend time with Justice Roberts. We're very excited. We're so excited and, and I think so proud of everyone's effort, especially our coach. 
Uh, and, and I thought MC just did such a wonderful job. Yeah, we, we're just so happy to be here and so grateful for the experience. Right. Um, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I think we're both um, very appreciative that we get the chance to do it. Yeah, we, we understand this, this sort of opportunity doesn't come along for 99.9% of real lawyers, so we feel real blessed. Tell me, what was this case about? We represented a, a fictional criminal defendant on an issue of Clean Water Act, so the definition of negligence if it's civil or criminal. And on my issue, it was about witness tampering. And so ultimately, what came out of it? So I was arguing that under the Clean Water Act, for a negligent violation, it requires a higher level of culpability than ordinary civil negligence in tort law. And I was arguing that merely encouraging someone to invoke a valid constitutional privilege is not witness tampering. So ultimately, what happened? So we're, we are uh, lawyers for the, uh, the defendant in this case, so we're going to say absolutely not. Right, he was not guilty of either offense. <laughs> what was it like being before a chief justice answering his questions? Terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. You just know how much experience he has and how much law he knows, and so you're always thinking... You know, when you're about to answer a question, am I going to have the case right? Am I going to have the facts right? Am I going to answer this in the way that is the way that he's asking the question? But he is just, we had lunch with him earlier today, and he's an incredibly, kind. an incredibly kind person. And so I think that all four of us were sort of, when we came to argue, we were more comfortable because we got to spend so much personal time with him. And he's just such a brilliant man that, I mean, no matter what we said, I think that's the most nerve-wracking part is just that he knows so much law. That was the scariest part for me. What were some of the criticisms that he had that you'll take back with you? I will never say with all due respect ever again in the rest of my life. <laughs> and for me, um, I think that sort of he gave me kind of the advice to, you know, when you have a point that you need to concede, you can concede a point. Um, in order to move on to another point of law or argument that you want to make. Um, but you can frame your concession in a way that it does the least amount of damage to your case and allows you to move on in your argument. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lindsay Roberts is a third-year law student at Mississippi College. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier more about her side of the case. Um, I represented the government, the United States, and my issue was about witness tampering. Um, whether Section 1512B says that a person can violate the statute by um, encouraging someone to assert their Fifth Amendment rights. What was the case about? What was the issue at hand? The issue at hand was whether Mr. Millstone, who encouraged his co-worker, um, his subordinate, to assert his Fifth Amendment right whether he had done so corruptly in violation of the witness tampering statute. And um, we argued that he did because he did so um, with an intent to protect himself from criminal liability. And what was the liability? I guess the case was about water? Mr. Millstone was indicted for his negligence in a situation that happened with his company where Mr. Millstone's company, by its negligence, introduced pollutants into a river or stream and so under the Clean Water Act the statute says negligence and that we should uphold simple negligence rather than gross negligence as the petitioner was arguing. What does it mean to have a Chief Justice hear you make an argument? It is terrifying um, for sure. Uh, about halfway through my argument 
I started getting nerves all of a sudden, and I was like, what What am I doing? I've already been arguing this for at least five minutes now. Why am I just now getting nervous? And so it's both terrifying, but it's incredibly gratifying to hear the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court give you positive feedback on the way you argued something. What feedback did he give you that you'll take to heart? I think what was really nice is that he gave um, a lot of positive feedback about the things that I did today that I can do again moving forward. He liked answers to questions. He liked the way I handled certain aspects of my argument. And so those will be things that I, I take into the future. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, organ donation advocates in Mississippi are praising the nation's motor vehicle departments. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Every day brings new questions. Whether it's the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey or the latest in government and policy, we have an ear for what's next at home and around the world. Stand with the facts. Start your day tomorrow with NPR's Morning Edition. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Organ donation advocates are recognizing the Mississippi Department of Public Safety during this, the second annual National DMV Appreciation Week. The event was created by Donate Life America to celebrate the work the Department of Motor Vehicle, DMV, partners do to save and heal lives by asking customers to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Donate Life Mississippi is a partnership led by the Mississippi Organ Recovery Agency, or MORA. They say there are currently more than 833,000 Mississippians registered as organ and tissue donors in Mississippi. Chuck Stinson is Director of Community Services and Relations for Mora. He tells us how often patients need organs in the state. How frequent that need is is really more determined by how many people are on the waiting list from the United Network of Organ Sharing. And there's over 1,300 Mississippians right now on the national waiting list waiting for a transplant. Over 1,200 of those are waiting on a kidney transplant, and 90% of those in our state are African-American. Kidney transplants are the most necessary organ transplant? Yes. About 59% of transplants across the country are kidney transplants. And liver would be seconded at about 22%. And uh, heart is the one that we always see on TV and everything, but it's really 8% of the transplant. Is that list based on first come, first served, or are there criteria that someone has to meet? A lot of criteria, really. It can be severity of the illness, time spent on a waiting list or factors, blood and tissue typing factors into it. I mean, Karen, you and I could be both needing a kidney transplant. I could have been on the list for six months. You could be on there for six days and you could get a transplant before me because of maybe you were sicker than me. Maybe a donor matched your blood and tissue type quicker than what would match mine. So there's a lot of varieties of reasons that transplants take place and when they take place. Because of that protocol or, you know, testing all of those things, is there a concern that the organ won't be viable by the time it's figured out and in terms of travel time? There are organs that are recovered for transplants that never get transplanted for various reasons, not a very high number. And that's why regional concerns are also a very big part of this. You, you wouldn't recover a heart and it would be transplanted in California if it was recovered in Mississippi because of the cold time that the heart would have out of the body. So there's a process in place. Ideally, you'd like to transplant a heart right across the hall. That doesn't always happen. It doesn't happen very frequently, actually. For a donor that's waiting, they always take the heart to the recipient and the transplant centers, and they have 
have essentially at maximum four hours to get that heart back in place and functioning. You mentioned that there is a disproportionate larger number of African Americans in need of a kidney. Why is that the case? Hypertension, diabetes, diet around Mississippi, it's just something that we deal with. We're not very good in the South with the way that we eat. A lot of salt, a lot of things that just cause problems. We are tough on kidneys in the South. Chuck, you're with the Mississippi Organ Recovery Agency, but there are other agencies that make up Donate Life Mississippi. Can you talk about the collaborative efforts between these different agencies? We are one of 58 organ procurement organizations across the country, and we deal with Mid-South Transplant Foundation out of Memphis that handles a portion of the state because of their location and their proximity to some of the counties in the state of Mississippi. So they're part of our team, as well as the Department of Public Safety, which has done an outstanding job in asking customers the question about being an organ donor when they go in to get a driver's license. And also the Mississippi Lions Eye Bank, which is one of our partners that we work with in the recovery of cornea and whole globe for research. This is a collaborative that really took footing about two years ago. We still do our own things separately, but when we deal with the Department of Public Safety and our our marketing and our, our strategic plan, We work closely with Mid-South Transplant Foundation. Are the need for donations from the deceased or can you be a live donor? Donation after death is really what we do. But there is living donation, which you would do through the transplant center at the University of Mississippi Medical Center or any other transplant center that's handling live donation around your area if you're not necessarily in the Jackson area or the central Mississippi area. But mostly our team's goal is to get people on the donor registry for donation after death. The easiest way for someone to become a donor is to list that on their driver's license? 96% of our registrations come through the Department of Public Safety because of the access that they have to the population of Mississippi and adult drivers. 96% of our 833,000 Mississippians are registered through the Department of Public Safety. And then there is online registration, which is an easy way to do it as well. And it's exactly the same thing at donatelifems.org. Or if you see team members out in the public, we'll have registration tables and forms as well. And, And really, Karen, the key to this whole deal, though, now, registration is what our job is based on. That's our performance for our job if people get registered. Equally as important for family members is to have the conversation about donation and find out what your family thinks about it, or if you register, let them know. Just talk about donation. It's kind of one of the challenges that we are issuing to people now. Talk about donation. In 2008, the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act passed in Mississippi, and it is legal first-person consent when people register as organ donors now. That's why organ donation and the conversation about organ donation is so important. Chuck Stinson is the Director of Community Services and Relations for the Mississippi Organ Recovery Agency, or MORA. Chuck, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Karen. We appreciate your time. Mora says in Mississippi there are currently over 1,300 people waiting on a transplant. Brad Fitzgerald is a heart transplant recipient from Macomb. He spoke with MPB's Desiree Frazier at a Mora event earlier this year. He says his life is forever changed. I feel so good. I've got so much energy. I, I just like to put it towards something that's going to benefit. Uh, Mora inspires me because they're a part of something that's bigger than themselves. And I can't explain the reason why I feel like I do now, but it, to be able to tell someone else, because I, I never really thought about it as far as being something that would ever affect me. 
And uh, I thought about one time of being able to share with someone. I was going to carry a picture frame to show them a picture of someone that could be affected by organ transplant one day. And I was going to put a mirror in that little picture frame because you never really think about it until you actually hear it from a doctor. What happened to you? I had an infection in 99 that affected my heart. And uh, I lived for about 14 and a half years with a, a weakened heart. And then after that, it just got worse. I had a defibrillator installed, and uh, it saved my life twice because with a weaker heart, you're more prone to rhythm problems, and uh, it had just gotten to that point. Uh, I couldn't do much of anything without just being out of wind, no strength, no energy. Uh, it, you're just sick. And when did you get to the point where apparently, I assume, you must have been near death? Yes, ma'am. Uh, it was in 15. Uh, I believe they put me on the, the list in August of 15, and I was on the list for almost eight months. I got it in the end of March of 16. What was it like waiting for an Oregon, knowing that your life depended on it? You're scared to death waiting on a phone call. You're scared to be anywhere your cell phone won't have service. You're constantly checking it. You Finally, after a little while, you say, well, it's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen today. But when you actually get that call... It's uh, one of those you got to sit down and take a breath kind of moments. When you got that call, how fast did everything happen? It happened real fast for just a few minutes. Um, and I called a friend of mine who works for our sheriff's department, and I said, I've got to get in Jackson. only thing he said to me was, where are you? I told him I was pulling in my driveway, and he says, I'm coming. And uh, he had me there in quite enough time, but uh, we had bad weather that day. And we got here in a hurry, but we had to wait once we got here for all the things that have to happen as far as getting the the heart and all to the hospital and all. We're just kind of in a whole pattern. So, I mean, it's a process. How long was your recovery? I'm still recovering. When they put you to sleep, you don't really ever know if you're going to get the thing because by chance if there's something that's not going to match up with you or there's some problem with the heart or something, you have to be prepared for the fact that it might not happen. But when I woke up, I knew I had had surgery, but I knew I felt different. I could feel blood volume that I had not felt in years. And uh, the recovery hurts, but I felt so much better and different than I had felt before. You know, you don't even think about the pain. What do you know about your donor? Anything? It's all in the donor family. I don't want to to rush them into anything. I look forward to the day of possibly getting to meet them one day, but that's all on their time, you know, and when they're comfortable with it because I know the happy side of this. They're dealing with the pain side of this and the loss, and uh, I don't want to make that worse. What would you say to them? I love you, and uh, I, your loved one has made more of a difference to me than I can ever tell you. It just gets me. Well, I appreciate you speaking to us and, and sharing your story, and we are so glad that you got that heart, and you're doing so much better. Thank you. I just enjoy being here. To register your decision to be an organ, eye, and tissue donor, please go to donatelifems.org. Coming up, Ole Miss students are voicing their opinion on what the school's mascot should be. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Every day brings all these new questions, whether it's about the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey or the latest in government and policy. We are listening for what's next at home and around the world. Stand with the facts. Start your day tomorrow with NPR's Morning Edition. This is Mississippi Edition. Voting continues at the University of Mississippi as students choose between a bear and a land shark as a sideline mascot. 
The vote is a student-led referendum spearheaded by the Associated Student Body. The election was originally Tuesday only, but has been extended to allow more time for voting. Peyton Overstreet is a senior biology major at Ole Miss. He says he supports the change. I think it's a a better mascot that unifies the Ole Miss community. Um, Kind of started out with football as a way for the defense, you know, to get hyped up. But now it's kind of grown into the entire Ole Miss family through all sports. So I think we can better relate to that than something like the bear that we have now. And even future generations, you know, the kids love the land shark. They're always throwing the land shark. So I think it, it kind of better embraces something we can all get back Kat Sanders is a sophomore graphic design major. She says she also supports the shark, the land shark. Black bear, no one really knows what it is. And we have so many different mascots around campus um, historically that I feel like if we do the land shark, it'll narrow it down. And we do fins up already, so I feel like it would just all make a little bit more sense if we took the black bear out of the equation and made it the land shark. The nickname for athletic teams will remain the Rebels, but in 2003, Ole Miss officials retired the Colonel Red mascot's uniform from the sidelines. Jeffrey Vitter is chancellor of Ole Miss. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the name is a positive part of the school's brand. Ole Miss Rebels is is not only a core part of the university, but it is an identity that is a very positive brand nationally. Seven or eight times as many people will, on Google, uh, query and find out information about the university using the term Ole Miss, not University of Mississippi. Uh, It is a more positive term in people's minds around the country than the the name University of Mississippi. I think that says a lot, and the reason is because we take that really positive view of always wanting to be an inclusive community that values one another, but also values coming together around uh, really getting at the essence of, of Ole Miss as, as a family. Uh, tell us what is the latest on uh, what you're dealing with. That vote will conclude Friday evening, and we're waiting to just get that input. We care always at Ole Miss about uh, of the input of the entire Ole Miss family. The, the thing that strikes me as chancellor that I'm most impressed and proud of is how passionate and caring the Ole Miss family is. And here we have the students who are wanting to, to look at the question of can we find a positive role model that people can rally behind uh, for, for our athletic teams. And so we're looking to wait to see what that feedback is. And what are their choices? What, what are they looking at? Well, their choice is on the poll. It's an informal poll, but they're looking at whether or not students would prefer to have the land shark be the on-field mascot for the Ole Miss Rebels. And uh, based on that input, since the land shark is far and away the, the image or the uh, informal mascot that has been coming to fore, first with football, but then with Marshall Henderson and basketball, course, Caitlin Lee, every strikeout throws up, uh, fins up our golf team when they sink a birdie putt. So it, it is kind of informally popping up everywhere. So it was a natural question to ask. And what is the uh, feeling behind having the Rebel? Well, the, the name Ole Miss Rebel, I, I, during my first uh, 100 days in office, I spent a lot of time talking to 200 groups around campus, 
around the state, around the nation, uh, from late January till uh, early May. Uh, called, we call that the flagship forum. And one of the things I got loud and clear, besides talking about our university, our directions and aspirations, is also how sacred the name Ole Miss Rebels is to people in the university. And obviously, the name Rebels comes from the Confederacy, but we have long ago shed and reject that connection. We have redefined Rebels to mean Rebels with a cause. We are entrepreneurs. We change the status quo for the better. We are pioneers, and we always protect that image of Ole Miss Rebels as a positive source for the future. So that's what impresses me about the Ole Miss family is that they are a group that cares about one another and cares about being that positive, inclusive community. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Vitters, for speaking with us. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thanks for listening today. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.